0: You're listening to the American Journal of Parenatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Parenatology. Good afternoon. I hope you all are doing well and enjoying the meeting. I'm Jean Chang from Charleston, South Carolina. One of our speakers had to pull out last minute, so we shuffled around the talks a little bit. Ravi Vedlani was kind enough to come and speak as a last-minute substitution, and he will cover biomarkers and their link with therapy. Suresh will talk about angiogenic factors and adverse outcomes. Arun will talk about management of severe hypertension. And then the latter part of the program is pretty much the same, the Individual Patient Data Meta-Analysis for Prediction of Preeclampsia, the IHO trial. And then Eleni Sigas is going to talk some about the Preeclampsia Foundation's Preeclampsia Registry. So I think it will be a good series of talks. And the whole purpose of the workshop is to elicit discussion. So uh, please don't be shy. There will be time for questions after every couple of talks. So first we have Dr. Thadlani, who is going to talk about linking biomarkers with therapy.
1: Thanks for having me this afternoon. I'm going to talk about how do we link the diagnostic markers that potentially people have an interest in with therapies. There was a whole session this morning sponsored by the Preeclampsia Foundation on the utility of biomarkers in this particular space, and I'm going to make the argument at least that one particular area should be the development of therapies for preeclampsia. So I know Sorosha and Arun and others are going to be talking about the utility of the biomarkers and some of the studies in detail. So I won't spend a lot of time talking about the studies per se, but again, how they inform us in terms of how best to develop therapies. So we've been very interested in the angiogenic markers, like many others. And I put this diagram here because it's going to serve as the backdrop for how we develop therapies. The simplistic view of the world, I guess, would be that we have too much of something that we think is bad and too little of something that we think is good. If we look at VEGF receptors that sit on endothelial cells, our goal is to increase the ligand binding to this receptor and avoid the ligand binding to the soluble receptor. And so with a simple diagram, we can talk about development of therapies. And the therapies, as you can imagine, would be giving more ligand, removing the receptor, or giving an antibody to the receptor to reduce, for example, its half-life. So there have been many different diagnostic prognostic studies. And as Eleni was just saying just a few minutes ago, how do you distinguish the two? But suffice it to say, when you measure these markers, I think it's fair to say they tell us on some level who is at risk for developing the disease well before clinical signs and symptoms, which is what Richard and others and we did many years ago. With that, then asking the question, can we introduce a particular therapy? We also know that the markers help us distinguish preeclampsia from diseases and disorders that mimic preeclampsia. In this case, for example, what I'm interested in, I'm a nephrologist by training, chronic kidney disease, where the angiogenic markers clearly are not elevated in individuals and women with chronic kidney disease, who also, by the way, may have hypertension and proteinuria, but who don't develop preeclampsia, versus those women that go on and actually have preeclampsia, and really nicely separating the two. And again, the same thing can be said about lupus as well. So Saroj has done some really fabulous work in looking at the markers longitudinally, cross-sectionally, and I won't review them. I know she will. But again, suffice it to say, these markers also tell us about adverse outcomes, as she showed nicely here in the different levels of outcomes and the adverse outcomes and the fact that the ratio is high in those women. What's even more interesting is that these markers tell us who is going to deliver in terms of the prognosis, and this is really saying we're going to measure this and hence determine who or when somebody is going to deliver. This is a paper that, again, Sorosh led that just came out this week in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, looking at sequential follow-up levels of angiogenic markers in women that don't go on to get preeclampsia versus those that do. So with that as a backdrop, can we use this as a way to develop treatments? Because if these markers are elevated before signs and symptoms, can you introduce a treatment? If these markers prognosticate who may require admission or who will have adverse outcomes, can we use it at that time to develop treatment? The markers, again, have been used in women all over the world for many different reasons. One of my favorite studies is a study, again, that we did with Sorosh, where we looked at individuals with a high ratio, and those women with a high ratio at the time of a triage setting required delivery within a few days. The nice thing about a study like this is it gives us a benchmark with which to then develop a therapy, because if a therapy is effective, you can imagine that that therapy would change the trajectory of delivery so that women may not deliver, or you can mitigate the requirement for delivery for a week, or two weeks, or three weeks, and perhaps use that as a registrational endpoint for an endpoint study. Now, again, people will review this, but this was a very nice study done by Harold and Stefan Vellerin and others, Holger Stefan on the negative predictive value. And the question is, can a negative predictive value test also help us determine whether or not to treat? It certainly can. It tells us, obviously, who not to treat, per se. So I'm going to focus on the development of a therapy. And I would say our quest, like others in this room, for developing a therapy, it would be, in my mind, almost impossible to do that in the absence of a good marker to tell us who to treat, when to treat, how much to treat, and when to stop treating. So what have we done in the area of therapy, we have asked the question, can we use this strategy to, for example, give more ligand back and bind the receptor, in this case the endogenous receptor. And yes, when you give more ligand back, you still bind the soluble receptor, even though this is an excess here. That said, if we can increase the signaling through the VEGFR2 receptor, which is the signaling receptor, that may be an appropriate strategic intervention. And we have tried that, Anand, myself, and others have tried this. We've given VEGF to the baboon model together with Angela Macris and and others. Anne-Marie Hennessy, we've given PLGF to the baboon model of preeclampsia. Suffice it to say, that's a biologic agent given in pregnancy. As you can imagine, the hurdles for the regulatory process on that front are not trivial. But from a baboon model standpoint, these kinds of therapies are actually very attractive. The other way, perhaps more logical could be, if there is too much of soluble flit, then why not, for example, give an antibody against soluble flit, and hence reduce its half-life, reduce its levels, and allow the ligand that otherwise is naturally made to bind the receptor. The challenge for, of course, this approach are twofold. One is, if you give an antibody, you're going to bind the soluble receptor, but depending on what kind of antibody you give, you potentially could bind the endogenous receptor as well, It's hard to develop antibodies that are unique to the soluble receptor. It may bind the endogenous receptor. That's one challenge. The second challenge is that the antibody very efficiently, as all of you know all too well, through the FC receptors in the placenta, cross the placenta. And of course, if the antibodies cross the placenta, there is a potential that it would affect the fetal VEGFR2 receptors. Now, if you develop antibodies that are non-neutralizing, in other words, they don't prevent the ligand from binding, then even if they bind, if you will, the endogenous receptor, that may still be OK. Again, you'd have to guarantee that they were non-neutralizing. So the challenge for the antibody approach are, as I mentioned, that said, as you can imagine, it's a very attractive approach. You'd have to dose titrate it, because we also know that soluble flit is a normal protein in pregnancy. And I guess that would be the last challenge there. We have taken a more simplistic approach, at least as a first effort, and worked with people actually in the audience here, on saying why can't we take this particular soluble receptor and somehow figure out a way to remove it, and you can do that through a variety of mechanisms, and that's what we essentially focused on. We took advantage of the fact that soluble FLIT in this particular immunoglobulin-like domain, number three, has a very high lysine-arginine-rich region and hence very positively charged. The blue areas represent the lysine, arginine areas, very strongly positively charged. And from a very simplistic fashion, why not have a column that is negatively charged to remove this particular protein? And if you just look at the cartoon here, you can take blood, run it through a column, and have that bind soluble flit, which is positively charged. The soluble flit could be ligand bound or not. It would bind the negatively charged beads in a sort of a phoresis-like fashion, a nephrology standpoint, a dialysis-like fashion, remove the particular protein of interest. Now, of course, in this very non-specific fashion, you would also remove other proteins that are positively charged. Now, the nice thing about these kinds of columns is they are clinically available, and we use them routinely in clinical practice in pregnancy and outside of pregnancy. And so we kind of repurposed this with the goal, of course, of increasing the duration of pregnancy in a very safe manner and avoiding sort of ICU care stay and so forth. So the study we did as a first blush was to take women between 23 and 32 weeks of gestation and asking, could we in some way prolong pregnancy and reduce the complication rates, if you will, for the fetus? So we worked with Holger Stepan on this. We worked with Thomas Benzing. We worked with a number of investigators at two sites in Germany. And the reason we did the study in Germany was a fewfold. One is the diagnostic test to measure soluble flit and PLGF are clinically available, so they are routinely used, number one. Number two, the machines that we wanted to use were available routinely, and the clinicians were very facile in using them, so we didn't have to do a lot of training. We had to, of course, modify the protocol. We had to change blood flow rates. We had to play with anticoagulation. All the things, if you will, that nephrologists do when they play with dialysis or phoresis machines. We had to present a few times to the regulatory bodies, the ethics committees, and had to overcome those hurdles. So it took us about two and a half, almost three years, to get the study approved. When you don't treat women, we know if they come in with very high ratios, as many people in this audience have shown, When they come in with very high esflit levels or very high ratios, they all deliver, which is the arrowheads here, they all deliver within a few days. And so this is our benchmark, that is, you take very sick women with severe preterm preeclampsia, can you extend pregnancy by a week, two weeks, and three weeks? I'll show you some data among of the women that we treated. We first treated women once, we treated them for a few minutes, we extended the time. The time in this case is a reflection of the dose. The longer time we treat women and the more frequently we treat women, the higher the dose we're delivering, if you will. So, for example, we can take a woman like this woman here who came in at 28 weeks of gestation, who comes in with a level of soluble flit of about 13,000, the normal at this time being about two to three thousand. So, of course, three to five fold elevated from that level of normal and Those women, or this woman in particular, when she came in, we then treated her after her levels went up to about 20,000. The dash lines represent the days of treatment. And we reduce her levels by 20 or so percent, 30%. But I'll just point out that following the treatments, and almost every woman displayed this, that there is a pretty quick rebound effect following the treatment. As if to say that the placenta wants to make sure there's a certain amount that's available there. We're not curing, if you will, the sick placenta, Remember, soluble flit has a local need in the placenta for blood flow. It increases the blood pressure of the mother. And hence, there is this rebound effect that we have to account for. That said, if we didn't treat women, you can imagine, again, the levels would continue to go up. And here we could keep the levels more tempered, if you will. And this woman delivered at about 15 days of gestation. This is a woman we treated four times. And once again, if you notice, the levels go down after treatment, and then they rebound literally within 24, 48 hours at every treatment. And this rebound phenomena is pretty common, again, among all women we treated. In fact, this made us wonder if the right treatment moving forward is more continuous or more frequent. And other people have used more frequent treatments, as I'll talk about in a second. What was the most surprising feature of these kinds of treatments is every time we treated a woman, the protein creatinine ratio went down. That is, the proteinuria in the urine went down, of course, with proteinuria being a hallmark of this condition as a surrogate or a potential surrogate for this condition. To see it go down, I think, was obviously quite gratifying. Every time we treated women, there are lots of hypotheses why this was the case. But it is a pretty universal feature that we found in all women that we treated. Importantly, we did not want to reduce the blood pressures and every time we treated women, of course, the blood pressures went down slightly, but we were worried, of course, about the blood pressures going down too low and hence gave back volume, played with blood pressure medications to avoid significant reduction in blood pressure. And for the most part, blood pressures were stable. The requirement for blood pressure medications did not go up. Now, I hate to show this kind of slide in an obstetrical-based group, but for a nephrologist, we're all too familiar with these kinds of machines. And I only put this up here just to highlight that at some point, we changed the machine. And the reason we did so is because of the efficiency of the removal. If you take whole blood, which is what this is, whole blood going through the column, the efficiency is about 15 20%. If you take the blood and run it through a column and separate plasma from red cells and only run the plasma through these negatively charged columns, you get a much more efficient removal. And so we moved from the whole blood to the plasma separator system. And in that process, first we treated eight women, and then we, after changing machines, went to treating 11 women. And we just published this study a few months ago where we treated 11 more women. I should say before I go on here and show you the last few slides is that in the interim, a group in Japan in a single case report, took a woman who developed severe preterm preeclampsia at 19 weeks and treated her two to three times a week with a central line and was able to take her to 24 weeks or thereabouts, again, with the same kind of machine that we did. So other people have tried this as well. And I won't go through all the data, but for example, this is a woman that we treated three times. Again, you see the soluble flit levels come down and then you see the rebound, the proteinuria levels here these are the levels of systolic and diastolic blood pressure here, and then this is platelet count and hemoglobin. I'll just show you from a picture standpoint, among the women that we did not treat, the blue lines represent the extension of pregnancy from admission. Again, these are women who come in with ratios greater than 85, and we just plotted the absolute s levels. And then if you look at In red, the women we treated compared to the women we didn't treat, you get a sense, even though this was not a randomized study, that in general, the women that we treated, there was an extension. And it turns out there was a prolongation of pregnancy about 10 to 14 days among women that we treated. So we were happy to see that. But we did not do a simultaneous control arm in this particular study. Very important for both studies. The first study we published in 2011, and the study we published just a few months ago, we looked at neonatal outcomes, fetal outcomes, and then neonatal outcomes, and what we found was that in utero, the estimated fetal weights would go up. There was a pretty arduous, I would say, assessment of uh, estimated fetal weights, of course, Doppler ultrasounds during the treatments and after. and. What was nice to see is that the estimated fetal weights continued to go up during the treatments, meaning at the time women were treated, and we were able to prolong pregnancy for some women, of course, and the estimated fetal weights went up. We also, of course, had control groups that we had created contemporaneous as well as historical to just ask the question, how did these babies who were delivered fare in terms of neonatal ICU care stay, oxygen requirements? And there was a tendency that the oxygen requirements were probably less, but again, here the goal was just to make sure we were not adversely affecting outcomes, which is gratifying to see. To date, we've treated 19 women with these kinds of therapies, 28 treatments. Other investigators have treated women. So we, I think collectively now, there are about over 20 women that have been treated with these kinds of devices. They seem to be safe. Of course, we have to do larger studies. But as you can imagine, The link with the biomarkers is absolutely critical, because in all of these studies, like other therapies that other people in this audience are developing, the biomarkers tell us when, whom to treat, what dose, and importantly, when to stop treating. And when I've talked about these kinds of therapies to the regulatory bodies, it's become very evident that this kind of metric, that is to have a biomarker linked to the therapy, gives, of course, the as you can imagine, the regulatory agency a sense of comfort that we're not necessarily doing something in excess. So I'll stop there and just say this is a woman who gave us permission to show the picture of our team of nurses, obstetricians, nephrologists, an excellent team of investigators, including those people in this audience, like Sarosh and others, happy to answer any questions. But I think the emphasis of the talk was, of course, how can biomarkers help us develop therapies? And I can say unquestionably, certainly they do. Thank you.
0: That was the American Journal of Paranatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com amjparanatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Paranatology.